worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The one serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my, will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor Being him. seated, let's pray together. And Jesus, we are so thankful for this morning. And we are so thankful for the ways in which you have provided a building for us, the church, to gather in. Lord, we pray that this morning would be the beginning of many times of worship, of many times of sitting under your word, of many times of seeing Jesus glorified and lifted high. That we thank you, we worship you, and we praise you. And we ask now that, Lord, by your spirit, you would help us to listen, not only listen, but obey uh, the words that you want to speak to us uh, through your holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we did one woohoo already, but why not a second woohoo? Like, this is great to be here, right? This is fantastic. Uh, I'm so excited. A few things just to add to what he said. Uh, If you want to serve on any of those teams, uh, email us at info at christcitychurch.ca or talk to Heath following the gathering. Info at christcitychurch.ca. If you're not serving anywhere, uh, as we've said multiple times, planting churches is not a spectator sport. Uh, It is very much a participatory sport. Uh, and so please, info at ChristCityChurch.ca to serve in kids ministry or to serve with the setup team or teardown team. The other thing I'll say is this. Uh, today and next week, uh, we're doing a two-part series called Death and Decrease. Uh, death and Decrease. So welcome to Family Furlane. Uh, death and Decrease are our two uh, things we're talking about early on. Uh, and then after that, on September 15th, we'll start on the Sermon on the Mount. Is my mic, is it all good for you guys out there? I've never been in here before, so I don't know. Um, the other thing... Uh, community groups start up the week of September 15th as well too. And so if you're interested in being a part of a community group, uh, we'll have more information about that next week as we get those rolling uh, into the new year. Uh, But for now, we have to acknowledge, as we already did, that today is a really exciting day. It's an exciting day. Uh, This morning, uh, many of you have been here for a while. You showed up early to unpack the van as we set everything up. Others of you uh, were here early to to brew coffee. Uh, Still others of you were busy setting up Christ City Kids. As I said, in a few weeks' time, our community groups will be going, uh, informal discipleship relationships will be starting, Uh, groups will begin meeting and grabbing coffee at the Laughing Bean or local Starbucks. Some of us will begin serving at local organizations. Others will begin reaching out to our neighbors with greater intentionality. Still more of us, and Lord willing, lots of us, will see people come to know Jesus for the first time. And Lord willing, these are but the first steps the first steps in a long journey for Christ City East Vancouver. As the famous Chinese proverb states, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And today is that single step for us. But if we're going to go a thousand miles, if we're going to be in this for the long haul, it is worth asking, how do we actually go where we want to go? How do we actually get there? Now, whether or not we've ever asked ourselves this question before, whether you're a Christian or not, we all live according to a script that is intended to lead us to our definition of successful. That is intended to lead us to our promised land, whatever that looks like. Now, I'm not naive. I know we all define success uh, differently. 
Uh, you might be here this morning, and it's nice to this morning and think success is defined by some notion of happiness, a certain degree of wealth, or, or something entirely different. But success for the follower of Jesus, indeed for the church of Jesus, not only looks a certain way. And this morning, in this very first time, as in this building, as a church, I want us to learn from John 12, 20 to 26, what it will mean for Christ City, East Vancouver, to be successful in this neighborhood. What will it mean for you and I and the things we do to be successful? In other words, how will and how does Jesus accomplish his work? Expectations, death, and honor. Expectations, death, and honor. So first, expectations. Uh, there is this proverb that we use that goes something like this. And maybe you've heard it before. Uh, unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. Unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. Uh, the idea being that if you and I have these unrealistic expectations about something or, or someone, we are just setting ourselves up for failure or disappointment in whatever area that is. And so our popular wisdom suggests we need to have the right expectations. For example, uh, we should not eat at McDonald's at lunch and then think we're going to feel really good at dinner time. Do a Whitecaps game or a Canucks game expecting a win. Right? That is an unrealistic uh, expectation. Uh, we should not come home from work expecting like a three-course dinner prepared for you and your children sitting like cross-legged playing nicely with one another. Right? It's just not going to happen unless it works for you and then we need to talk afterwards. As Christians, this proverb rings true for us as well. Our reading this morning comes from John 12, 20 to 26. But, and, and this is a good principle for reading our Bibles just in general, to understand John 12, where it exists in the book of John. And before John 12, you guessed it, uh, came John 11. And in John 11, it's like the, the, the climax of John's gospel. In John 11, we find something unbelievable. In John 11, we find the resurrection of Lazarus. The resurrection of Lazarus. Now... If anything smells like a savior, if anything smells of his coming kingdom, if anything smells like things are changing, surely, and maybe you agree with me, it's 12, 9 to 11, we read. Apparently Jesus' people and the people of his day thought the same thing. John 12, 9 to 11, you can look in your Bibles with me. It says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, right? Someone's raised from the dead. I'm going, you're going, we're all going to see Lazarus, right? Whom he had raised from the dead. And so in verse 10 it says, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This fanfare reaches its climax the next day uh, in what the church has traditionally called the triumphal entry of Jesus, or this day we celebrate called Palm Sunday, where people line the road and shout, Hosanna, save us. The Savior is here. King Jesus is here. It's a, it's a royal procession. It's at its peak of its height. Uh, the momentum is carried into our text, and we come to our text now when John begins verse 20 by saying this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Look at there. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told 
Jesus. Let's not miss, let's not miss the significance of what is happening in these first two verses. First, John points out that these people who came to see Jesus were Greeks. And John doesn't point this out because he hates Greeks and wants us to know that they were Greeks, right? And let's ostracize them. No, he, he's saying this because he's telling us something about the nature of these people's relationship with the one true God of Israel. Uh, this word for Greeks we find here in verse 20 is this word broadly used in the New Testament to refer to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so while they could be from Greece proper, what John wants us to know is that they weren't part of the tribe or the people of Israel. Uh, they weren't Jews. These were people coming to the festival who were outside the covenant people of God. In other words, John is telling us Jesus' movement has gone global. It's picking up steam. It, it, it's moving ahead. And this becomes even more clear if you look at verse 19. That there's a contrast being drawn between the Jews who are exasperated with Jesus, right? Like, look. The whole world has gone after him. And now in verse 20, we see here that the, even the Greeks, indeed the whole world, has gone after him. John wants us to see this. Building on Lazarus' resurrection, seen in his triumphal entry, Jesus' mania has reached a fever pitch. Right? You, you might know Beatles' mania. Well, this is Jesus' mania. And even now, the, the non-Jews want to speak with Jesus. And so they grab Philip. Uh, Philip is a Greek name, and perhaps they think Philip speaks Greek. They grab Philip. Philip grabs Andrew, the other Greek name in the group, and together they come to, to Jesus. Now would be a good time to press pause on our story and acknowledge that you and I want Jesus mania. Don't we? We want Jesus mania. We would love to be with the disciples at this point in history. Everything is going according to plan, isn't it? The death of death, resurrection from the dead, like sign me up. I want that. Liberation from our enemies. The institution of the first and only completely just government. I'm in. I think you want that as well too. So what's the plan, Jesus? How is this going to happen? Well, all throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been referring to his time or his hour. His time or his hour. Uh, early in John's gospel, Jesus is at a wedding, just relaxing, and his mom comes up to him and says, hey, like maybe do a miracle here, they're out of wine. Jesus says, uh, woman, my hour has not yet come. When he's talking to a woman at a well who he shouldn't be talking to, uh, who's arguing with him about where true worshipers of Yahweh worship, Jesus says to this woman, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. After Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the religious people don't want to talk about the healing, they just want to talk about the fact that it was on the Sabbath, Jesus says to them, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus is being pressured to take his act on the road to Judea, he responds really plainly, really simply, my hour has not yet come. John, ever the clever gospel writer, is building suspense here for us. Is building suspense amongst the disciples of Jesus. Jesus, when is your hour? When is it coming? And what will it look like? Will Jesus do that thing now that he's been telling us about? This thing that's miraculous, that, that will change things. Is that happening now? How will he accomplish this? Could it be now? Will there be angels coming from heaven? 
Will he send fire like in the Old Testament? Will it be the vanishing of our enemies? Expectations couldn't be higher. There could not be a greater fever pitch. And we should ask now, what are your expectations of Jesus? What are your expectations further of this church? What do you want out of this? Maybe you want to find lifelong community and belonging. Maybe you just want to be supported in times of trial and suffering. Maybe you just want a cup of free coffee and and good music and like, you know, a palatable sermon. How about more widely? Do you expect thousands of people to come to know Jesus in this neighborhood? Do you expect this neighborhood to be transformed by our presence? Do you expect to see neighbors and coworkers and strangers repent of their sin and follow Jesus? Do you expect that we'd witness, even just a little bit, the inbreaking of his kingdom in our day? Do you expect that you'd see the pouring out of his spirit in our time? See, whether it's the 21st or the 1st century, we all come to Jesus, don't we? With our own expectations. Our own ideas about how this should work. And, and that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. See, Jesus seems to confirm the hype when in verse 23 he, he says this, and Jesus answered them, this is to Philip and Andrew, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus promises to glorify himself. He, he promises to do all that he said he would do. He is promising to exceed our expectations. But, and here's where we miss this. Here's where our expectations fail us. The path to glory, the path to fulfillment that Jesus will go on and outline in the rest of our passage, is not paved with triumphs, is not paved with worldly wins. Rather, it is paved with death and with sacrifice. Look at verse 24 and 25 with me as we move from expectations uh, to death. John writes, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In verse 25, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That, that, that truly, truly we see at the beginning of verse 24, Jesus wants us to know, and John uses this over and over and over again in his gospel, wants to emphasize the trustworthiness of what Jesus is saying. You, you can hold on to this. You, you can trust this. Further, it is underscoring the importance of what Jesus is saying. So John wants us to lean in. Uh, if they had tape recorders, they'd want us to turn on the tape recorders. If they had iPads, they'd want us to start taking notes, right? He wants us to lean in. What will Jesus say now? Truly, truly, listen, I say to you. And in the farming world of the New Testament, Jesus' disciples would have quickly picked up on the imagery he goes on to explain. A, a seed, not in the ground, I hope this doesn't surprise us, uh, can't do anything. I would be delusional to think that if I go and pick up tomato seeds and leave them on my counter for the whole week, I should expect to reap a harvest of tomatoes at the end of the week, right? We all understand that's not how seeds and planting seeds works. I know none of us do that. Maybe some of us do. I know at least one of us does. Uh, but we don't really do that, right? 
That's not how seeds work. But if that seed dies, if that seed dies, if it is covered up in dirt, if it is buried in the ground, what started off small, minuscule, tiny, is able to produce a tremendous harvest. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, let me be very plain here and clear, is telling us that his glory will be by way of crucifixion. His glory will be by way of of death. He will die, and from Jesus' death will come much fruit. And the fruit of Jesus' death is a people who are now able to join him in dying to the things of this world. People, now free to live the lives they were always created to live. Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection will bear the fruit, we're told here in John 12, 26, will bear the fruit of eternal life. Of salvation. But it's not just his death where Jesus models his willingness to be sacrificially obedient. His death is merely the climax of a life lived in obedience to the Father. Jesus' self-effacing, self-denying posture was seen earlier in John 8 when he said, really simply, yet I do not seek my own glory. And just a few verses later when he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is is nothing. In fact, the entirety of Jesus' life was one lived willingly in submission to the will of the Father. From him, as John shows us in John chapter 1, from him being the eternal word who took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. To him dying on the cross for our sins on our behalf. This is important. Not only does Jesus' death make it possible to follow him, But Jesus' death uh, gives us the paradigm to follow him. Jesus' death shows us how we are to follow him. Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you love, if you love your life in this world, here meaning, love here meaning, you hold on to it. You have your nail sunk into it. With all you've got. Self-preservation is the name, on the, ga- of the name of the game. Jesus says, you'll lose it. Like a vapor, to use the words of Ecclesiastes, uh, it, it will disappear from you. You won't be able to grab onto it. But if you hate your life, again here, hatred meaning that you die to your own self-preservation. You, you die to your own advancement at all costs. Jesus says, if you hate your life in this way, If self-preservation is not the name of the game, you will gain, you will inherit, you will receive eternal life. And in John's gospel, eternal life is more than just life forever. It also refers to a quality of life. Jesus says you can have life forever and life in you right now and into eternity if you lose your life here in this world in this time. If self-preservation is not the name of the game. John writes elsewhere in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 2, 15 to 17. He makes this very, very clear to us. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, John says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, John says, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is diagnosing the heart of humanity's radical discontent. Of your discontent, of my discontent. See, we come to Jesus, don't we, with good expectations. 
We want him to make a difference in our lives. We want him to make a difference in our communities. We want him to make a difference in the broader and global world. Expectations we need to see that have been hardwired into us. You and I are desiring creatures. We are built for love. We're built to be in relationships of love with one another and with, in with relationship of love with the God of the universe. We want this wholeness. We want this completeness. We want what the Bible calls shalom, human flourishing in the way God always intended it. But what we miss and what I miss so often is how this shalom has been accomplished and how this shalom will be accomplished. See, it has been accomplished in the death of Jesus. And it will be accomplished in our lives and in Hastings Sunrise, as we see in verse 26, as we follow Jesus in dying to our own self-interest. Leslie Newbegin, he's a theologian, he wrote on John's Gospel, and, and this passage is in your handout, I'd encourage you to look there now. He says this, To be a servant of Jesus means to follow him on the way of the cross and in doing so to abide in him. It is a life which is not guarded and preserved, but forever thrown away. Yet it is a life constantly received as a fresh gift from the source of all life, in whose eternally outpoured love it has the assurance that death has lost its And when we consider the ways that we might follow Jesus in his death, there are some things, aren't there, that really quickly come to mind. We are vain people. We are vain people. I imagine following Jesus in his death will at times mean that we will see beneath and behind the facade that we are so good at presenting. We're a vain people. We're an envious people. I imagine following Jesus in his death will mean there will be things, material and immaterial, that we don't have and that we never get. And we'll have to learn what it means to be content. We are creatures of comfort. I'm a creature of comfort. And I imagine following Jesus in his death is a heaven forbid that Jesus asks you to do thing that is not in keeping with your Enneagram number. Right? And we'll have to die to that. Things that don't come easy or, or, or naturally. We are power hungry people. And I imagine that following Jesus in his death will require our acknowledgement that he's the name at the end of all this that we want people to remember. Not mine and not yours. These are all general things. But what might following Jesus in death mean for you this morning? And for some of you, it might be as simple as confessing your sins for your first time and believing in Jesus. For others of you, it might mean something else. What is the Spirit speaking to you this morning? What does following Jesus in death mean for you this morning? It's worth noting that for almost all of Jesus' first hearers of these words, all of his disciples, following Jesus in, in his death meant following Jesus in, in literal death, in, in martyrdom. Now, one of our core values as a church is that we are grounded. We're grounded in scripture, we're grounded in the culture, and we're grounded in the history of the church. I want to focus on being grounded in the history of the church. Because if we look at the history of the church, we see that it has always meant, always meant to follow Jesus, to follow him in his death. Uh, we can think of, of the first and second century Christians uh, when plagues ravaged the ancient Greco-Roman cities. And it was Christians, 
Christians who, who stayed behind and nursed and cared for those dying, while the pagans fled to their hillside villas, it was Christians who stayed. It was Christians who stayed and ministered at the cost of their health, at the cost of their life, at the cost of their social standing. We can think of Christians in Korea. During the Japanese occupation from 1910 to 1940, societal disdain, and at times even death. What might following Jesus in his death mean for us in this age? What might it mean for us in this day, in this neighborhood? Because make no mistake about it, following Jesus, following him, there are no things that we can do without. Following Jesus has always meant and will always mean following him in his death. And the worst thing we can do as a newly planted church gathering here for the very first time is create an environment where that's not clear. Where that becomes optional. Geologist, he wrote this little book called The Rise of Christianity. And at the time of writing, uh, Rodney Stark was not a professed Christian. He was just interested in asking the question, how did Christianity grow? How did it grow? It's a fantastic book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. But in that book, Stark argues that the Achilles heel of collective activities, and the church is a collective activity, congregations plagued by free rider problems. A visit to the nearest liberal Protestant church will suffice to discover members, he puts members in quotation marks, who draw upon the group for weddings, Funerals and perhaps holiday celebrations, but who provide little or nothing in return. The, the, the free rider problem in this book, so if you buy it, just be warned. But we need only to look at our consumer-minded churches and our consumer-minded congregations and our own consumer-mindedness to, to know that this is true. It's true. Churches and people that thought life could be found in this world and in the ways of this world and have instead found death. Who have sought to ally the church with the political power or, or sought to ally the church with the cultural zeitgeist. Whatever way the, 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 the current's flowing has always led to death. And see, here's the paradox at the center of following Jesus. When we follow Jesus in his death, we are promised we are promised, and this is the good news this morning, we are promised that we will join him in his resurrection life. Look at uh, verse 26 with me. Jesus says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. From expectations to death, now to honor. See, the thing is, none of this following Jesus stuff matters Result in life here and now, and end with our joyous acceptance into the heavenly kingdom, none of this following Jesus stuff matters. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he said this in the book, and I'll say it twice because it's one of those good quotes. Only one who believes is obedient, and only one who is obedient believes. Let me say it again. Only one who believes is obedient, and only one who is obedient believes. Let me put it to you as straightforward as I can, Christ City. Do we believe this morning that the path to true honor, to, to true life, to true meaning, to true satisfaction, to everything we actually want is through death? I have had to come with, to grips with, uh, as we plant this church, is that proclaiming Jesus uh, will never lead. It will never lead to the worldly fame and praise uh, that I sinfully desire. It will never lead to that. It will never lead 
to political power. It will never lead to worldly riches. We will never be unanimously celebrated in this neighborhood. Never. And as a guy, and perhaps you can relate to this, who really wants to be liked, who really wants to be respected, that this is what it means for me to follow Jesus in death. But the only thing that sustains me and the only thing that can sustain us, and I really believe this, is knowing that in Jesus, not only do we have all the approval and honor we need today, but there's a day when we will receive approval and honor. We have to recognize where we are in history. And in 2 Corinthians 4, you can flip there if you like, Paul is talking about having the life of Christ made known in us as we follow him in his death. Uh, In this passage, Paul talks about being crushed, uh, perplexed, uh, despairing, persecuted. It sounds like death. At the conclusion of this little section in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul ends with a word of encouragement. And it's a word that I want to end this morning with as well. If you have your Bibles, go with me. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. And I want you to follow along with me. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. There we'll read. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This death, this wasting away, Paul tells us, is preparing for us a weight of glory and and honor beyond all comparison. And so he says, look to the things that are not seen. The things that are not immediately obvious. Look to the things that are eternal. Because, he encourages us to look, because this week we will hear an entirely different story. Won't we? We will hear that the only things that matter are the things that you can touch and feel and see in your bank account. We will hear that, won't we? So get. Well, getting's good. We all say together, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus who glorified the Father not in the bringing of his army, but in his death. Jesus, who has united us to himself. This Jesus, this Jesus, not some triumphant Jesus who fits our times, who fits our preferences, who fits our expectations. This Jesus, 25 to 26, look with me one more time. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, Christ said, hear this, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.